Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide and lead us, and show us what you would want us to see through this chapter that we're on. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting at verse 10. Uh, remember that Paul got chased out of, uh, of, of the previous town, which I can't remember, Philippi. And they put him out and... He leaves and he ends up uh, moving, and we're going to go in verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more noble than those of Thessalonica, in that they received the words with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Therefore, many of them believed and also of honorable women which were Greeks and of men not a few. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the people. And immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were to the sea, but Silas and Timothy abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a commandment unto Silas and Timothy, for to come to him with all speed, they departed. All right, so they were in Thessalonica. Things got crazy in Thessalonica. Paul and Silas were spirited away, were told to, told to leave, <laughs> and uh, because of the riots that were starting there, and they went to Berea, and it says, very, it says quite interesting that they got there, and they went to the synagogue, and it says in verse 11, these were more noble than those of Thessalonica which means that they were, they were more civilized, I guess you might say. They're not, they're not given to the riots that, that these other towns were. But they were also very interested in listening to the truth. And it's kind of interesting, if you've ever done any witnessing of various places, there are certain places where people listen easily and some places where they're combative, <laughs> just as a group. And it's kind of interesting that Paul went there and he found people that were willing to listen. And it says they received his words. And then the most important thing, with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily to see if what he was saying is true. So they were taking what was said, going back to the scriptures and saying, is what he's saying valid? And this is something that I want everybody to do in our church, is always look at the scriptures. When you hear something, if you're listening to me, look at the scriptures and see if it, if it matches up. If you hear a, a special guest speaking from here, search the scriptures. If you're listening to the Christian radio channels, search the scriptures. Make sure that these people are saying things that are scriptural. Because just because they say they're Christian, just because they say they're you know, speaking the truth does not necessarily mean that they're speaking the truth. And we see it all the time with people who get famous and, you know, and, and are pretty good speakers, and then they slip away from what they believe and they start teaching fallacies. And all the time you read, on, you read in newspapers or read on articles and saying, so-and-so is no longer preaching or has fallen or, or you know, has, is no longer teaching valid doctrines. And so we want to keep this up and be good Bereans ourselves and say, is what's being said scriptural? Because a lot of times things sound good. 
Satan has just enough scripture, just enough truth in his lies to make them sound good. And the truth in the lie is the hook to draw you into the lie. And this is very important. The cults out there will deny that Jesus is, Jesus is God, but they will say just enough truth, true-sounding things to drag people in and, and be, be the catching of them. And this is why it's important for us to know God's word and to study his word and compare his word to what's said. If something doesn't match scripture, do not believe it. If you read something in the Bible and it doesn't seem to make sense, read, number one, read the context, which is what I tell everybody. Read the context. Make sure that what, you're, what, what you think it says is what, what is fitting in the context. And then let scripture interpret scripture. And one of the very important things, and you'll hear me say this quite often, if you find something mentioned in the Bible one time and one time only, it's interesting, it's true, but you may not understand it the way it's supposed to be. Make sure you understand it. All right? And this is very important. If you're going to stand on something being true in the Bible, you want to find it two or three places. If you find it two or three places, especially the more places you find it, the more trust you can have that you understand it correctly. But if you, if you only find something in the Bible one time, you, know, you definitely want to understand it in context. Make sure that you really, truly understand it. And very important, you know, I truly do believe that, you know, children, uh, you know, that are pre, pre, uh, not born, not physically born or die at a very, very, very young age probably end up in heaven. But there's only one verse that even talks about something that, and that's when David's first child with Bathsheba was killed. And David said, I can't go to him. I, he can't come to me. I must go to him. And it's the only scripture in the Bible that talks about young children going to heaven and that we will meet them in heaven. So it's hard to make a doctrine based on that. Now, I know it's comforting to people who've lost children, and I'm not going to take that comfort away from them because I do believe that God is just. If a child is so young that they can't make a choice, I believe that God is going to be just and take them to heaven. But one scripture is not something I can stand on and say, here's my scripture for it. Uh, it is a scripture, it is true, and, but it is David speaking it. So we don't know that David was making a doctrinal statement or just making a comforting statement. And so this is one of those things, if you have it only one mentioned one time in the scripture, then you need to be able to say, okay, I think this is what it's saying, but. Uh, and we can use principles on it, but to make doctrine, we want to know that the Bible says it. We know that we have to have sins forgiven by the blood, and we know that the blood of Jesus Christ is what forgives us because we have several verses about that. We know that heaven is a real place because we have lots of verses about heaven. We know that hell is a, is a place because Jesus especially talked about hell a lot. So there are certain things that we know without any doubt in our mind because of how fully they're explained in the Bible, and then there are certain things where we have to be a little more reserved in our judgment and this is very important these guys every time Paul would say something they went back to the scriptures and said is what he's saying true and especially if you're going to be taught because this is important even if you have a teacher who has been right every time you've checked them out don't stop checking them out <laughs> because at some point they could get tangled up themselves and not necessarily on purpose trying to lead you astray 
but just slip away, slip away. You know, I, had a, I know this one teacher. He was a really good teacher. He taught very well. But his pride got in the way. As he started running out of things new to say people, he started inventing things to say. And then he started getting dementia on top of that <laughs> and wouldn't stop preaching. And he started teaching some very, very strange things. But a lot of people went with whatever he said because he had taught for years very solid doctrine. And we need to be careful. Always check out that teacher because you never know what can happen. Uh, and if you're really in tuned with the Holy Spirit and you're in the Word of God, you're going to know when they speak incorrectly anyway. I remember listening to one pastor, and I liked the guy a lot, and that was just kind of, it was kind of background noise at one time, and all of a sudden, everything in me, just the hairs of my head stuck up, you know, back of my neck stood up, and it's like, what did this guy just say? And I started listening and realized that he was talking, you know, false doctrine. You know, no, it was a topic that, minor topic, but it was teaching things that did not match up to the Bible. You know, and I pretty much liked him in most cases, but it, it, that the Holy Spirit will also tell you, if you're attuned to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will let you know when things are not right as well. Uh, you'll get the, the klaxon sounding in your brain that something's wrong. You know, and, and when that happens, pay attention. Ask God to show you what it is that is, has set off the alarm system. <laughs> and Because the Holy Spirit is the one that is our protector on all this. And so he will show, he will teach, and he will help us. Uh, and in, in Berea, it says, and many of them believe. Now, this is the first time we have many Jews believing when Paul preaches in the synagogue. All right? Jews have believed, but in this case, it says, many of them believed. And listen to his message. And then also of the honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. He's building quite a large church in Berea. And the interesting thing is, the only mention of the Berean church is here. It's one of the very large churches that he starts to, to, to set up. And it's not one that we hear anything about. Which I think is kind of interesting. And I don't know why it's interesting, but it's just interesting to me that a church you know, gets built and not much is, you know, Paul never writes a letter to them, you know, directly to them. Uh, he's not... He's not talking about them throughout the, all of his other letters. He just started this church and went, went away. Well, because the other ones, most of the times he wrote letters to them. They were in trouble. <laughs> yeah, the Bereans were good. They studied themselves. It appears that the Bereans had a, had a good, yeah. solid church. Yeah. And that is a true statement. There are so many Christians that think that the first century church was a good church. There was nothing wrong with it. Everything was perfect. Well, they obviously have not written read the book of, of Acts or any of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles were to these churches that were having trouble to correct their troubles. And if we didn't have his corrections to the troubles, we wouldn't have all the answers to half the problems that we deal with as a church in our day and age. So they had the same problems we do in the first century. Actually, even before the first century. We haven't even gotten to the first century yet. Uh, the, the, the first century church had the same problems that we have, and we know because the letters are written back to them. We see the problems, we see the troubles, we see the, the arguments over who the best teachers in the church were and who, who, who you're going to listen to and all these other things going on all the way back in this, in this period of time. Now, 
Paul writing to churches that had all kinds of problems and saying, I'm going to correct, you know, here, here's to correct your problems. I, I'm, I'm your senior pastor. Here, here's your letter. These, these are the reports I'm getting of what's going on, and here's what you're going to do to fix them. And I'm glad he did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the answers for the problems that we still have today. But the Berean church, and I agree, it probably was the Berean church was a solid church. They ended up with good teachers that understood the Bible, and Paul didn't have to go back to them and, and write them a whole bunch of letters saying, I hear you have lots of problems. Here's, your, here's how to fix your problems. They were taking care of their problems. They were growing. They were being spiritual. And this is a good thing. Uh, you know, when I was managing, the best thing that could happen is when you didn't have to worry about certain people running your store or when I was working to be an area supervisor, there were certain stores that always had visitors from the from the area managers, and there were certain stores that never had managers for the area supervisor. And you can guess which one was the one that ran a good store, the one that never saw the area supervisor, uh, you know, or saw them once a month out of, you know, just because they had to go visit the store because you were one of their stores. My, that was my stores. I rarely ever saw an you know, area supervisor and hardly ever saw a district manager. And that was only if they were doing an official tour. Uh, but this is one of those churches that Paul's going, I don't have to worry about this church. This church is stable. They are doing what they're supposed to do. And this, so we don't, we don't ever hear a lot about this. Well, verse 13 says that the uh, Jews in Thessalonica weren't happy about the, the church being built in Berea. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how people who want to cause trouble are never happy just causing trouble where they're at. <laughs> Uh, they got to go stick their nose in everything. Yeah, they have to go. They have to leave. They have to. They have to leave Thessalonica and go to Berea. All right. Uh, let's go. Let's go stir up trouble because I don't know whatever reason they had. Now I'm sure that they thought that you know, Paul was such a troublemaker themselves that they just had to go tell the Bereans. You know, you know, we got to protect you because you obviously don't know what you're doing. And they come down to uh, to Berea where Paul is preaching to stir up the people. You know, and this is one of the things that I have really found over the years. There are always people who want to stir up trouble. You know, uh, you know, there are people who just don't like it when everybody's happy. You know, everybody's happy, so they've got to come in and stir up trouble and poke their fingers into things and get people angry at each other for whatever reason. And I'm not sure what it is about humans that make us want, you know, make certain people especially want to do this thing. You know, part of it is to make people as miserable as you are or to make sure that they're more miserable than you are. I don't know. But these ones have gone down to Berea to cause problems. And they agitated, stirred up the people. And in Berea, it says, verse and they immediately, the brethren sent Paul as if to go to sea, but Silas and Timothy abode there still. So they sent Paul away. Paul has been the lightning rod. Paul is the main speaker. He's the one that goes into the synagogues. He's a rabbi. So immediately, when, because a rabbi comes into the synagogue, he gets the permission to teach because he is a recognized teacher for, for them. And, you know, this is kind of an interesting place because I know, I know a man that he feels that if he shows up into a church because he is a pastor, he's been a pastor for a long time, 
that that pastor should automatically give up his, their pulpit to him. Now, I don't know why he believes that. I don't know why he believes he's more important than some other, you know, the pastor of that church. But this was the way it was done in the synagogues. If a rabbi visiting rabbi showed up, they would get the honor of speaking. And there is an honor, and I'm not saying, you know, it is not something you do when somebody comes to visit if, they're, if they are somebody that you deem worthy to speaking or anything, that they should get that opportunity, and I would do that for some people. You know, this man, I would never let him freak in my church. I don't trust his doctrine. Uh, but, you know, he actually believes that he should, just because he's a pastor, get the pulpit if he shows up. And it's a scary thing to me that, to feel that way. You know, if I go to somebody's church, I don't expect to be in their pulpit just because I'm a pastor of a church. Uh, they're a pastor too. Why should I? Now, when Paul would visit these churches, many times they did not have rabbis in a lot of these synagogues. These synagogues would just let whoever felt like they had a teaching gift or had, had developed a teaching gift be the teacher. So when a rabbi did show up, they felt honored to be able to hand it over to a rabbi because a certified rabbi had certificates saying that he had been taught. And Paul is going to, if you remember, Paul had been taught by Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the number three Jewish rabbi of all time. Not just Paul's time, <laughs> of all time. So Paul was taught by the best teacher of his day. So anywhere that Paul went, all he had to say is, I'm a disciple of Gamaliel, and you know who's speaking in that synagogue. And I'm sure that's exactly what he did, even though it doesn't tell us in the scriptures, I'm sure that's what he did. He goes, hi, I'm Paul, I was, I'm, I'm a disciple of Gamaliel. And I'd almost guaranteed that he was going to be the speaker at that synagogue. Now, they weren't gonna like what he was gonna say because now he's teaching as a Christian, not as a disciple of Gamaliel, but he, gets, he uses his credentials just as he uses his credentials all over the time of being a Roman citizen. You know, uh, we saw that in Philippi. In Philippi. You know, you guys beat me in public without a trial, and I'm a Roman citizen. Uh, all of a sudden, brings all kinds of apologies and, and fear because you did not beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And it was hard to beat them after the trial. You'd better had a good case against them because they were citizens. And so he used all of the tricks at, at his disposal to be able to get positions and get the seat and get the, get the opportunity to teach. So he is sent out of Berea, and it says, Silas and Timothy stay behind, and when he gets to Athens, he sends back a message saying, tell them to come to me as soon as they can. Now, what, were, what was the part, thing that Silas and Timothy was doing? Probably setting up the leadership, putting in pastors and elders and deacons and helping them get their church you know, officially lined up so that they could continue going on before they left because their teacher, the founder, has gone, <laughs> all right? And this is important. The church has to have a leadership structure in place. Uh, we can't just, and I know there are certain churches out there that say, well, we'll just let whoever's going to speak today be the speaker. Well, I understand that if God's gift to somebody to teach, yes, you give them opportunities to teach, but there has to be somebody who is leading the church, directing the church and where it's going to go. 
And this is what Silas and Timothy were doing. They were staying back and helping them get themselves in order because Paul was being basically chased out of town again. Uh, it's not as, not as big, but this, they were stirring up people. And in every town, there were people that can be stirred up. And this is something that is very important for us to understand. When I've heard many preachers talk about Jesus in Jerusalem saying, yeah, the people were worshiping him and saying Hosanna on, on, on the triumphant entry, and then the following week they were all saying crucify him. You know what? Jerusalem had tens of thousands of people in it. The people who were worshiping him the week before were not the same ones that were crying crucify him at the end of the week. The end of the week, the, the scribes and uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, Sanhedrin had gathered up their groups of people and whipped them into a frenzy saying, we've got to crucify this guy before he causes trouble. It wasn't the same guys worshiping him in the, the week before. At least that's how I believe. You know, it's not, it's not the same people because the town was much too large you know, to not have a whole other separate group. And the Sanhedrin knew the group of people that they could get to say, crucify him. And so you want to keep that in mind. You know, be very careful on that. Uh, I never have believed that it's the same group of people. Uh, the disciples were worshiping him. The ones that were against him were you know, saying, crucify him, crucify him. So we, we see that uh, process. And so these guys from Thessalonica found a group of people in Berea that are saying, let's stir you up. This guy's going to cause all kinds of trouble probably not going to the other Jews, but going to those that are worshiping other gods and saying, this man only believes in one God. If he, if he gets this town turned around, they're going to be keeping you from going to your temples. And this is something, even to this day, Christians are attacked for what we believe. And we are in the process of having America set up to attack us even more. You know, we've got the Equity Act being going through Congress. It'll make it against the law to say anything against transgenderism and homosexuality. You know what? Churches, true churches that believe God's word are going to have a problem with that because I'm never going to say that those things are okay, which means that I can be fined and or imprisoned because of this act that's going through. Now, granted, it'll go up to the Supreme Court and hopefully be declared unconstitutional, but that's a long wait and a lot of pressure and a lot of cost involved in making that happen. You know, but the attacks on Christianity are increasing because we are considered intolerant because we will not bend to the way that the world thinks because we have a standard that we believe that God said gives us a standard and we're going to believe it and I'm not going out and attacking everybody, but I'm also not going to be afraid to say that God calls it a sin. And it's an interesting dichotomy that we have to, to run. To say, this is true. God says things are true. And the world, just as it did way back in the Greek days, just as it did with the Romans, they will ask, what is truth? And our world is doing, what is truth? They don't believe that there is truth. You know, and I think it's very amazing that they will absolutely say that there is no absolute truth. You know, and that's kind of an interesting dilemma to me. To make an absolute statement that something is not absolute is very interesting. And yet it happens all over the place. You know, I, I work around a lot of people who have psychology degrees. 
And it is amazing the stupid things they say in what, in, because of what they've been taught in their psychology classes. And you listen to them and you point out the inaccuracies of what they say and they just don't see that what they're saying is inaccurate. You know, even though it's clearly inaccurate. But you know, when we believe something strong enough, we don't usually see the opposing side. Um, we're watching the Ken Ham videos here and he's, one of the things he says is that when we talk to somebody, we, we all look at the same facts, but we, it depends on what glasses we put on, what is our presuppositions to what we're going to believe. And once you believe what you believe, it will not be shaken. Even if it points out why it's totally, totally not true, you won't shake, it doesn't usually shake most people's attitudes. The Thessalonians are coming in there, are finding out the people that they can shake up and get, get angry. And Paul escapes now, goes a little further south. Now he ends up from Berea, he goes to Athens. Now Paul doesn't get to spend a long time in any, in any of these places. He keeps getting chased out and get, gets moved to start churches. So we look at verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him and said to him, what will this babbler say? Others some, he seems to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them that Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine that whereof you speak of is? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. This is kind of an interesting statement for Athens. Athens really was the center of the people who'd want to debate. All right? Um, it was, I don't know what we would you know, consider in America, but it was the place we would go to discuss all kinds of different things. They said, no, we're not going to go there. They never discuss anything. Uh, you know. um, I would think more like Ber Berkeley used to be or some of the Ivy, Ivy League schools where you used to be able to, to give different, doc, you know, different states. Colleges used to be this type of environment where you could discuss. Uh, now, now you cannot do those kind of things you know, anymore because you can only hold one view. And don't, you know, and you can discuss just about anything that's not Christian, but don't bring any Christian or truth in. Uh, Paul is in Athens, and Athens is that center of thinking. And he comes in, and it says, and Paul waited for them, and his spirit was stirred in him when he saw that the city was given, the whole city was given to idolatry. All the Paul, uh, Paul, polytheism around him, all the altars around him. Here is a Jew knowing that there's only one God, that God has offered the sacrifice and he's watching all these people make sacrifices to all different kinds of gods. Athens was very famous for all of the temples. The biggest temple was for Athena, but they had 
idols everywhere, altars everywhere. And you could not walk down the street without passing altars. <laughs> and people were making sacrifices everywhere, all over the city. So everywhere Paul's going, he's watching people make sacrifices. And knowing that he knows the truth, being bothered by it. And as usual, he starts with the Jews. <laughs> he's disputing in the synagogue about this and with devout people, and in the marketplace daily with them that met him. So everywhere he's going, he's telling them about the one God. One God, Jesus, who died on the cross for their sins. You know, and this is something that I hope gets to us. Do we get bothered by all the sin and all the craziness that we see around them, around us, and start talking about Jesus ever? You know, it is quite interesting that, you know, when I'm out of the prison, you know, God opens doors to speak to people all the time. Now, I'm not out there purposely trying to bang them over the head with the gospel message, but, you know, I make all kinds of comments that are tr based in truth, based in the Bible. And if God opens that door for me and the, and the door's open for me, I take advantage of it. You know, to tell people that they need God, that they're not going to get to heaven on good works, they're not going to, that there is truth. And many of them don't want to hear that there's truth. You know, but we need to be able to say that there is truth. We need to let people know that God loves them, the God, the one and only God. Because we're getting more, more polytheism in our own country. There are a lot of people who don't know who God is. And it's getting harder and harder to even talk to people about God because the very first thing we have to do is to find who God is. And it's very interesting to try to tell people who God is. It used to be in America that you could say God said and people all knew that you were talking about the God of the Bible. Now when you're talking to them, you've got to first off find out what God they're thinking of. Are they thinking about Allah, the moon God? Are they thinking about Krishna, the, the God of the Indian, Indian religions? Are they thinking about Buddha? Are they thinking about, you know, uh, themselves? <laughs> you know, uh, their navel, whatever it is that they're, they're placing as God, you know, we don't know, but we need to first off figure out when we start talking to them, we got to define who God is. The creator of the universe that made, made all things from nothing, who makes the rules that we live by, who is the one that speaks truth. Without God, they don't understand truth. And in Paul's day, I don't know how many of you have ever studied Greek mythology and Roman mythology, but, you know, those gods were interesting, interesting uh, individuals. They were basically strong people with special powers, with all the anger and lust and frustration and, and bad side of, of people, except that they had power to do what they wanted to do, which makes it very scary to worship somebody like that. You know, they, and they would just figured if, if you, bad things happened to you, it was because the gods were angry with you because you would... You had, disrespected them somehow. How did they get the power from Satan? They believed that they were gods, but oh. they were just... The one thing about idols, or idols take the worst parts of mankind and elevate them up to be, be God. Uh, you know, to worship Athena and the other fertility goddesses and gods, you, the way you worship them was through orgies. If you worshiped a god of power and approbation, you worship them by giving up everything you thought is important so you would get them 
to give you what they thought was important, which meant a lot of times people would sacrifice their children to those gods. You know, get rid of my family because I want the power that this god is going to give me by giving up what, what I thought was important. You know, there was actually gods of thieves, and you worshiped them by stealing. You know, this is, this is the thing that happened, the god of war. How did you worship the god of war? You went out and caused trouble, and you, caught, you went out and fought wars and battles. It was all part of this, and this is where we understand God says we become what we worship. When we worship him, we become more like him. When you worship an idol in your life, you become like that idol that you're worshiping. But it still doesn't matter that it's dead. You become like whatever it is that you worship. And it's very important that we understand that. And this is one of the things why Jesus said, you'll know that they're my disciples by their love one for another because he is love. So the more we worship him, the more we're going to love others, the more we're going to learn to be forgiving, the more we're going to be giving mercy out. It's very hard for me when, I, when somebody claims to be a Christian and they show no love for other people, I have trouble with how much do you know God? You know, not that we're ever going to be perfect. Don't, you know, we're never going to get perfect in our love. We're never going to get perfect in our graciousness and our mercy. But if we're somebody that's holding bitterness in our heart and we won't forgive somebody, we won't love somebody, we need to really look and say, do I truly know God? Am I, am I being changed into his image? And it's something that we need to look at at times and say, am I being changed? You know, now, are there certain people I meet and I know they're a Christian because of the love that flows out of them, the kindness that flows out of them, and it's consistent. Not 100%, but it is consistent. And this is something that's very important. We see Paul loving God so much that he's willing to give up everything and talk to everybody. Now, Paul goes out and he meets two different groups in Athens, which are very famous groups if you know anything about philosophy. He meets Epicureans and he meets Stoics. Now, Epicureans are an interesting group of people. They de deny that the world has, has, was created by any god. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe in anything. All they believe in is the here and now, and so they say, enjoy it to the best of your ability. The idea of ain't drink and be merry for tomorrow you die is their motto. Now, it wasn't officially, but that's really what it is. Just enjoy this world because when you die, you become worm food. Very much what our world says today. Just enjoy this life because when you die, there's nothing thereafter. There's no, you're not eternal and a very depressing way to live because all you have is the non-fulfilling life of today. And nobody is ever fulfilled by, by life in today, so they say just have as much fun as you can because you're going to die and after that, nothing and really sad way to live, figuring that no matter what you do in this life, all you have is whatever you get done in your lifetime, and it's all over. And given enough time, nobody will remember you. you know, and this is very true. I mean, how many, for the average person, once they die, their kids remember them, their parents, if they die before their parents remember them, their grandkids, maybe an aunt and uncle, a few cousins, Within two or three generations, they're barely even known. I know the name of several of my descendants, but I know nothing about them because 
they're dead. They, were, they didn't do anything famous. Now, if you get famous, you get to be known for, to a handful of people better than others. We got people in American history, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. But you know, how about if we go back? How many people know the, the, the heroes of England or Scotland or Germany or, or not? You know, unless you have a reason to study them, you don't ever think about them. We as Christians might know some of the great reformers, Knox, Wesley, uh, you know, different people that we might have out there, Wycliffe. And I've even said that many of you probably don't have a clue who some of those people are, and they're very famous reformers. I know them because I've studied, studied the history. They are the ones that the, pushed the Protestant Re Reformation. They are ones that created, created some of the first English Bibles. They were helping get our church the Protestant church removed from the Catholic church. You know, very famous people, but so many people don't know who they are. You know, we could go through the missionaries that unless you read their books, you don't, you don't know who they are. You know, and it doesn't take long for people to be forgotten. So if you're living by an Epicurean system, very quickly you're going to be forgotten. And this is the way they were. So Paul meets the Epicureans. And he meets the Stoics. Now, the Stoics were on the opposite end of things. They believed that there was a God that controlled everything. Now, it wasn't a very nice God in most cases. And you just had to put up with whatever came your way because you had no control of your life at all. So you had the one side that you are in full control just to have whatever you want. And you've got the other side saying that you have nothing that you can control. Their, their uh, motto would be just grin and bear it. You know, because you have no control, you just got to put up with it. Stoicism is what we have today. I just take it because I can't control life, and I'm just going to get, I'm just going to get through it. You know, because I have real no, I have no, no choice in the matter. And these are the two extremes. Now you're going to talk. Paul is in the center here, and he's going to talk to two people that are absolutely at two extremes. Now Paul is kind of used to this because he's got this. Because he was from the Sanhedrin, which had the, scry, uh, the, the Sad, Sadducees and the Pharisees. You had the Pharisees that believed in the supernatural and the power of God, and the God controls everything, very similar to the Stoics. All right, And you had the Sadducees who did not believe in the supernatural and did not believe in heaven or hell. So Paul's probably feeling right at home here. All right? These are Greeks. They're not, they're not the Sanhedrin. But they're, in essence, I mean, not exactly with all their philosophies, but in essence, they are the same two groups that he's used to dealing with. And in our day, we still have these two groups. We have those who don't believe in the supernatural, don't believe in the eternal, and are just trying to live for today. We have those that are so far the other direction that the supernatural is completely in control, and we just can't do anything on our own. You know, and we still have these groups in today's world. And this is something that we need to understand. There's nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. Every time we get some quote-unquote new religion, when you look at it, it's the old religions with new words and new, and new clothes, but they're exactly the same things that are out there. Satan does not create new stuff. He counterfeits the truth and then keeps putting new clothes on it and keeps telling people the same lies over and over again because people are, I don't want to say stupid, 
uh, ignorant, ignorant of the past. <laughs> you know, our politicians count on the same thing. They understand that if there's more than, more than three months before the next election, they can do and say whatever they want because nobody's going to remember when it becomes election time. And the sad thing is, it's fairly true that most people do not have memory of the past. Most people do not know history well enough to see what's coming, coming down the pike because they don't understand history. You know, where we're at right now in our world is scary to me because all through history, the fall of the nation has been led by what's going on today in America. And the world does not, the Americans do not see it because they don't know history. You know, it's amazing how people, most Americans don't know American history, much less history history. And, you know, when we look at history, they tell us that history does not repeat itself. They're wrong, it does. Maybe not exactly the same way, but the same principles, the same philosophies keep repeating themselves because there's nothing new under the sun. And what's worse is we can go back into the Bible and we can see everything that's going on now that happened, has happened in the Bible. You know, it's nothing new. History tells us, the Bible tells us. And all we've got to do is open our eyes and we see exactly where we're going. Now the problem is nobody sees it even when you tell them about what's coming you know, and, and tell them that this is what's happened in history. They still won't believe you. Paul is going to meet two groups that are what, who's what he's used to dealing with, who we still deal with today, and he's going to get to preach to them. I, this is going to be a fun thing. How do you teach, how do you talk to people that are on two opposite ends of the pole is a tough thing to do. You know, very tough. Because he's going to be in the middle, but you, you've got to still, it's, what, what, what would you say to one group does not mean anything to the other, and you talk to the other, and it doesn't mean anything to them. If he's talking about spiritual things to the Stoics, the Epicureans are going, well, what are you talking about? There's no spiritual anyway, so who cares? He talks to them, and the other's going, well, you know, God is just going to be God, and we can't do anything about it. So you know, he's, got, he's got his work cut out for him in the group that he's talking to. Uh, and they come to him, and, it says, and they start out with, what will this babbler, this empty talker, say to us? All right? Uh, he seems to be setting forth strange gods, gods that we don't know anything about. He, he because, and it says, because he, taught, he preached to them about Jesus and the resurrection. This is a big deal. When we talk to the world about Jesus and the resurrection, it is hard for people to believe. The idea that Jesus died on the cross for us and then that he came back from the dead. Now, most of us understand that when you're dead, you're dead. And yet Jesus rose from the dead. And the scriptures very clearly teach that he did, you know, that he rose from the dead. And we can give all the proofs later on on another day. We've given several messages on it, especially Resurrection Sunday messages on the proofs of the resurrection. You know, he rose from the dead. He was, saw, he, he was, he was seen by over 500 people in, the, in Jerusalem area. You know, plus... You know, we know that he was seen and that he lived. Uh, and yet, when you tell people that, it's like, uh, well, you're really crazy to believe that somebody rose from the dead. Then we add on to the fact that he was virgin born. 
All right, now we know that you don't know what you're talking about now because you know that everybody has to have a mom and a dad. Everything when we talk about Jesus sounds so strange to people to bring it up. And they would go just like they said, what, a, what an empty talker. This guy's empty-headed. He can't even think. And yet he's giving very strong evidence. And this is really important for us. We accept what we believe by faith, but we also have to be ready to give a defense for what we believe. Why do we believe it? What is the evidence for what we believe? So that people may think that we're strange and, and kind of sick in the head, but at least they have to look and say, oh, well, they've made some good points. And these guys are, it says they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was a very famous court up on the hillside of Athens. All right? Before the Roman Empire took over, it is where most of the, the, it was their supreme court met there. You went up there for usually capital offenses. So on one side, Paul's in a kind of a dangerous place because he's, he's being drug, drugged before the court. Uh, even though it's not the court for Romans, it is, or the Greek mentality, it is the court of last resorts. And they're, they're saying, we want to know what this new doctrine whereof he speaks is. All right? Now, doctrine is a word that scares many Christians, but all it means is a way of thinking. All right? Uh, in colleges, before they started calling them majors, you studied doctrines, ways of thinking. You did not study a major. You studied a doctrine or a way to think. Uh, in American history, we've had such things as the Monroe Doctrine. And if you know your history, that was a way that we were going to deal with foreign governments. And it was a set system of thought processes and said, this is how we deal with our foreign, foreign governments. And that's what doctrine is. It's how do we think? What decisions are we going to make? So when we talk about doctrine in the Bible, it is literally thinking the way God wants us to think and how he thinks. And this is where we are as Christians. We follow Christ. We try to make our decisions according to how he thinks. Back in the uh, 80s, there was the WWJD that was very popular. What would Jesus do? All right? And that's a very good thing. You know, I want to think about what Jesus would do or say or act and act like he did. Uh, now, the most important thing is that we need to internalize that process so that it just becomes automatic. <laughs> I've studied so much in the Word of God that when something happens to me, I automatically act the way He does. And this is why studying scriptures is so important. The more I study the scriptures, the more I get to know the way God thinks, the more I know what He expects, the more I start acting out <laughs> the way He would want me to act out. And this is what these guys are saying. We want to know what is this way of thinking that He is bringing out. He is, he is speaking strange things in the marketplace. He is saying very strange things. We want to hear him. And the good news is in Athens, they really did want to hear. They debated strange ideas. They, they would banty around all these different uh, philosophies. The Stoics and Epicureans always met together and argued with each other. All day long, they would argue with each other. You know, well, you know, there's a God in charge and we just got to put up, no, you know, there's no God, just, just enjoy your life because, you know, and they would 
battle back and forth and make their points and quote their, quote their leaders and, and debate. And that's exactly what it tells us at the end of this chapter, that these people in Athens spent all day debating, debating strange ideas. So here comes Paul, who has a totally different idea. They've been battling back and forth and not getting anywhere, and here's somebody with a new way of thinking, a new piece of truth to put into the, into the thing to, to stir up the pot. And I think they really wanted to know, because neither one of them were satisfied. Neither Epicureans or Stoics are happy with their decision. Stoics are just bearing, bearing up underneath the pressure and aren't a happy group of people usually because they're just, just going through whatever the gods send their way. Epicureans, we know that somebody who's just eat, drink, and be merry and getting into drugs and sex and alcohol and everything, and they're never fully happy and, and satisfied. The Stoics are not satisfied because they're not enjoying life. Here's somebody who seems to be enjoying life. He has life. He says there's truth. He's talking about a God that loves you. This does not fit into their mindset. The Stoics don't believe in a God that loves you. They believe in a God that sends all kinds of problems your way and you're not going to get past them. You know, they're the ones that would believe the Greek myths. If, you know, and I'm not, we're not going to go into all these, but you know, the Greek gods got mad at you. They sent a whole bunch of bad things and did bad things to you. And you know, They might even be mad at you because you worshiped one of the other gods and they got mad at you because you weren't worshiping them. They believed that their life was under control of the god or gods and that they just had to put up with it, that they had no control. Basically, they had no control over life. Uh, the Christian principle on this would be those who believe in divine providence that you, you have no actions that make any, any sense. Whatever God sends your way is what you're going to do and you just have to, to, to bear. So there are Christians that have that same mindset that we're just stoic. God is so much in control of my life and, he, and I just have to put up with whatever he sends my way and I'm not going to be happy because for some reason maybe God just doesn't like me and he wants to make things miserable for me and he doesn't love me and there's a lot of Christians that believe that. Well, I mean, we believe that, that, that God controls our lives but we don't think he makes us miserable. Right. Yeah. And, but there are those who just believe I've got to put up with everything because for some reason I've done it, whatever I get I deserve. Uh, you know, and there's not a God that loves, you know, there's a lot of people who suffer with this idea that God doesn't love them. Yeah. And that's, even from a Christian point of view, there are Stoics within the Christians. And technically, there are Epicurean-type Christians who are just saying, well, I can just do whatever I want, and God's going to love me and, and, and bless me and because, you know, because he loves me, he paid my price, so I can just do what I want. Now, they're not true Stoics and, and Epicureans, but we still have that mindset. And this mindset flows in all that we do. Uh, you know, the problem is that there's someplace in the center. God wants us to enjoy life. He gave us here to enjoy life, but he also, as, as we know, he is in control. He is sovereign. He directs the past. There is a providence in life that what he says is going to happen is going to happen. So we have to walk in between these two extremes. They believe that God's, they're not even necessarily worshiping the gods. They believe that gods or a god or gods control their life and are generally out there just to make them miserable. 
they're going to just bear whatever comes their way. There's no loving God. There's no loving gods. They just have to put up with whatever's happening to them. Yeah. Uh, the Epicureans just don't believe there's supernatural anyway. All I have is this life, and when it's done, it's done. And, and so Paul is being drugged before these two very disparate groups. So you think he was taking It is a very interesting word because it literally means that they drug him up there. Uh, but the actions that he's doing does not seem to indicate that. So it's hard. The Greek word literally means he was drug up there, you know, compelled to go up there probably would be a better word. Uh, he's not being arrested. He's not being, you know, battling. He's kind of willing. He's being compelled to being drug along. If you've ever been in a large group that's headed in one direction, you can kind of understand you, you pretty much go that way. He wants to go that way anyway. He wants to talk to him anyway. So it's not, uh, not that big a deal. And they're going, we want to hear this new teaching that you're giving. Because this is new to them. And Athens is the center of, of knowledge. They want to hear these kind of things. This is where uh, the great Greek philosophers have, have all taught is in Athens, right at the Acropolis. You know, this is where they taught. So Paul is going to where these great men have have been able to, to speak. And then in verse 20 it says, For you bring certain strange things to our ears, and we would know thereof what these things mean. All right? You are teaching us things that just don't make sense. The Stoics are saying, you're talking about a God who loves us and has done good things for us. We don't understand that. The Epicureans are going, you seem satisfied, but you believe in the supernatural and you're not talking about just having fun. You know, we are now in a world where most people are, we still have these same, same groups, even though they're not called by these things, we still have the same groups. You know, we now have the daredevil groups. You know, they're just not happy eat with drugs and alcohol. They've got to do extreme sports. You know, go to the top of a place and jump off of it just to see how long, you know, how many bones you break on the way down or whatever, you know, it's, you know, uh, ride their bikes and jump off things or ride their skateboards or, their, you know, skate, you know, skates, jump out of airplanes and see how far you can fall before you brave enough to pop the chute, you know, doing something crazy like bungee jumping, you know, but they're all looking for that thrill that takes them to the point of death to try to get a thrill. They're Epicureans. They're Epicureans. They're just saying, how much fun can I have? And we're done with, we're done with the alcohol. We're done with the drugs. Many of them still do those things as well. But you know, they're trying to do anything that brings excitement into their life. Before they die. Before they die, because that's the end thing. You know, I'm, I just have to have as much fun as I can before I die, because at the end of this life, is, it's done. It's over. And Paul is bringing in a new idea to them. To the Stoics, there's a God who loves you. And that all these things aren't just something you have to bear, but he has a reason for them. To the Epicureans, he's bringing in the idea that you can ultimately be satisfied. This is what we have as Christians. When we truly know God, we know that there's a God that loves us who has a plan for our life, and it's a good plan. And we know that we can be satisfied 
We're not looking for the emptiness. As Pascal said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every one of us, and nothing else fills that vacuum other than God. Because that vacuum is an infinite-sized vacuum that needs an infinite-sized God to fill it. And no matter how much stuff and experiences and knowledge I stuff into that vacuum, because I'm finite, I cannot stuff enough information into that vacuum to satisfy. Because the only thing that satisfies is God. And when we get saved and God comes into our life, there's all of a sudden the satisfaction when we really get to know him that he is what makes us happy. He is the one that gives us the satisfaction. Solomon tried to fill up that emptiness with all, all kinds of things. And we read the book of Ecclesiastes and see all the stuff that he tried to fill that up. And he was very wealthy. He, had, he, had, he was able to do just about everything to try. And he did. If you look at his life, he pretty much tried everything there was to try. Throwing money at, at, uh, at all these activities, throwing lavish parties, you know, getting the best of the alcohol, getting the best of the drugs, getting all the women that he could ever possibly want, and then some. Uh, putting his name on all the, all the parks and all the buildings that he built to get his name out there. Expanding his nation to the, to the limits and still was never happy. You know, and he wrote about it and saying, these are all the things that I did. But that really is what Christians end up doing. Our stuff is nothing to us. Nothing, yeah. My my personal reputation is nothing. I want to seek God's reputation. I want my testimony to be what honors God. And if that means I humble myself and let others stomp all over me, then maybe that's what I need to do it sometimes because the truth ultimately will come out and I just let God be my defender and say, okay, God, you, you handle this. Because I'm not, you know, one thing I learned over my years is the more I tried to defend myself, the bigger mess I always made of it. You know, so I've kind of learned just, all right, God, you know, when I screw up, I'm going to say I'm sorry, I messed up. When, I, when I'm falsely accused, you know, I say, God, you tell me when to speak, and otherwise I'll let others be my defender. And the more we let him defend us, the better off we're going to be. And... This is very important. We have a whole new way of thinking. I am nothing. Everything is about Christ. If it doesn't help for Christ, then I really don't care about it. If my reputation gets in the way of Christ being lifted up, then I want my reputation to fall. If, you know, if, he, lives, if he is exalted because somebody stomps on my reputation and I, I kind of just you know, am quiet and he's lifted up in that, then it's time to be quiet. We need to be very sensitive that he is the one that is exalted, not us. And this is why Jesus said that this, the one who's going to be greatest is the servant of all. Who is going to be his servant and allow him to be lifted up, allow him to be exalted? Paul is here talking to everybody about Jesus. And they're going, we want to know about this really strange doctrine that you're teaching us. And then as a side note, for those of us in our day and age that don't know what goes on in Athens, he says, uh, verse 21, for all the Athenians and strangers that were there spent their time in nothing else but in to tell and hear of new thing, of some new thing. That was what they were known for. 
Athens was the center. Coffee house would be a good idea. Uh, town square. Um, but Athens was extremely famous for this. Most of the great Greek philosophers taught at Athens. It was the center of knowledge. And it was a center of debate. If you wanted to discuss great things, you went to Athens. And you would, you, know, you would tell your side, they would tell your side, you'd defend your side, they would defend their side, and you would debate all day long. And you'd come back the next day and continue. And you'd come back the next day, and you would continue. Uh, and these were the things that happened. All right? Aristotle taught there. Uh, you know, so you had the, you know, held his, held his instructions there and defended his beliefs. You know, all these great teachers taught at, in Athens. And Paul is getting to teach on the same spot to defend Christianity to them. And we're going to listen to what he talked about next week. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us. We, Lord, we thank you and ask you to help us learn to be able to defend truth and to follow you in all that we ask you to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.